Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, January 30th. The attack in Jordan that killed three Americans and wounded dozens more raises a number of questions. One of them is, did you know we had U.S. troops in Jordan? Did you know that they were part of something called Operation Inherent Resolve? What? Who ever heard of that? Most Americans have not, and I'm sure Congress, not sure if Congress ever debated or explicitly authorized it. So how militarily involved in the Middle East should the United States be? Not just in terms of military aid to countries there the U.S. wants to support, that's one thing, but how militarily involved with American bodies and American blood and why? Most Americans probably thought the Iraq war and ISIS uh, war periods were over. Next question. Should the United States be withdrawing all its support for the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinian refugees? Some of its workers have been found to have been involved in the October 7th attack on Israel. You've probably heard that story the last few days. But the agency employs thousands of people and is helping ease a real humanitarian crisis affecting millions of people. Um, A possible analogy, we'll discuss this later, there are no perfect analogies. But what if the NYPD was found to have some bad apples committing abuse? Would we suspend funding for the whole police department or prosecute those individuals and look to see what systemic changes are needed? Different countries are answering the question about UNRWA funding in different ways. And yet another question, can the United States and Qatar get Israel and Hamas to yes on a new ceasefire for hostages plan, or even a longer-term peace plan. We keep hearing they're close. How can they close the deal? All these tough questions show it's been another eventful few days for the people who actually live in the Middle East and that the U.S. is its eyeballs in it. With us now, Fred Kaplan, the military and global affairs columnist for Slate, who writes their column called War Stories and is author of books, including The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Hi, Fred. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi. Always good to be here. Let's take the attack on U.S. troops in Jordan first. Can you explain why the U.S. has military personnel in Jordan? A lot of listeners probably didn't realize we did. Well, we're talking about <clears throat> two or three hundred. I mean, really, not very many. It's along. If you look at a map, it's it's on the northeastern corner of Jordan, which is very close to Iraq and Syria. Uh, this has been a favorite route for ISIS when ISIS was a big deal. It's not a big deal anymore, but it's still a deal. And other kinds of smuggling. Uh, it's mainly a deterrent operation. They don't get involved in a lot of combat operations. They have absolutely nothing to do with the war going on in Gaza right now. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, they're they're exposed, uh, just like anybody else in the region is at this point. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. supposedly withdrew from Iraq, ending the U.S. war there back in 2011. Then ISIS surged, and the U.S. decided to keep troops after all or send more. Mm -hmm. Then most Americans thought the ISIS era had also basically ended with military victories against them. Certainly Donald Trump is going around and uh, saying, I destroyed ISIS. So 
So I guess from what you said in your first answer, that assumption is wrong. We're still there fighting ISIS. Uh, we're not fighting ISIS, uh, but we're the the idea is that preventing a resurgence of ISIS. And by the way, it's not like we're there secretly. We're we're there with the with the approval and even uh, uh, desire of the host governments. Now there's a lot of pressure in Iraq now for all the U.S. troops to leave. There are a couple of thousand. Uh, so, you know, whether that happens. Right. But, but, you know, you, you raised the question early on, you know, should we even be in the Middle East at all? And, you know, Brian, you, you know, you remember the one, the one memorable line from The Godfather Part Three, is when Michael Corleone has he's wanted to go legitimate, and, but he keeps getting in. And he says, they keep pulling me back in. They keep mm. pulling me back in. Yeah. So what the Middle East is. What, during, during the transition... Uh, of the Biden administration. I was talking with a senior advisor who later became a senior official. He's not there now, but he was. And I said, what, what are the priorities for, for the foreign policy? You know, what, what areas? And he said, well, number one, Asia Pacific. Number two, Europe. Number three, South America. Mm-hmm. And number four, the Middle East. I mean, every president in our lifetimes, practically, has wanted to get out of the Middle East. So, uh, but so just, on whose behalf do we have those troops there? One could argue that U.S. interests are not actually at stake in Iraq or Syria anymore or Jordan, except for troops that we continue to station there who are just protecting themselves, not any other Americans or American assets. Or would that be wrong as Washington sees it? Well, you know, but then what happens when traffic gets choked off in the Red Sea and this affects 20% of, of U.S. maritime traffic and prices start to go up? Or what happens when something like al-Qaeda is allowed to, to, you know, percolate and then terrorist strikes happen in Paris or Berlin or New York? Um, <clears throat> I, I, You know, I... <laughs> I uh, the, the guy who told me about Middle East being number four was, in fact, a Middle East expert. Everybody wants to get out. But when we start to get out, bad things happen. Now, you could say the U.S. should just get out of the world. And if you take that position, uh, yeah, the Middle East is a good place to start getting out of. But, <clears throat> you know, the, it's... If you want to remain a major power, it's just hard to to do that. Right. So on what the smartest response is to the attack, and you mentioned some members of Congress who want to attack inside Iran. I'm going to play a clip from Morning Edition today of a Republican congressman who didn't quite say that, but I want you to hear what he did say. This is Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida, who is arguing not quite to attack inside Iran, but to attack Iranian assets of some kind directly, rather than just hit back at the proxy militias. Here's a few seconds of Congressman Waltz. That part of the world, uh, they respect strength, and they understand consequences. And as long as they believe there's not going to be serious consequences, then they're going to push further. So I think the administration has to reverse course and hit back in a way that Iran cares about. So... 
Fred, I wonder if you have a take on the politics of this, because uh, I mentioned the right-wing isolationists. Here's a right-wing interventionist, Republican Congressman Waltz. I, I, I wonder, you know, there's a Steve Bannon camp uh, that Donald Trump often articulates the views of that says, what are we doing being the policemen of the world um, engaging in foreign adventurous wars, right? This is the anti-George W. Bush wing of the Republican Party, wing of the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, and they use that to argue against funding Ukraine. Maybe they're really just pro-Putin. Um, but here, here's a test for that wing of the right wing on how much they want the U.S. to continue to get more involved militarily and show its strength or say, no, we're going to spend our assets on Americans. That's the America first argument. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you're certainly right about the hypocrisy there. Uh, I think, though, that leaving aside his uh, sort of cliched rhetoric, he's making a point. Uh, you know, Iran said this morning, oh, this really needs to be solved by diplomacy. And, and you know, I'm thinking, oh, now you say that, you know. Uh, I think, uh, and, you know, I don't have access to intelligence that would allow me to get specific about this, but I think something that Iran values does have to be attacked. I think it it can't be just something belonging to the militias, can't just be destroying some outpost of, of, a, of a proxy militia. Why? At the, at the same time, at the same time, I think pressure for diplomacy really does have to be stepped up on all sides. You know, Qatar. Qatar is, is you know, delicately negotiating with Hamas over a peace deal. You know, Qatar, President Biden declared Qatar a non-NATO, uh, a major non-NATO ally. The Fifth Fleet is in Qatar, and yet they are the leading ally of, of Hamas. Hamas leaders live in splendid houses in Qatar. They need to start pressuring these people, and we need to start pressuring Qatar, and we need to start pressuring uh, Israel as well. I mean, I understand the reluctance of Biden for various reasons to, you know, put a hold on on arms supplies to Israel. However, you know, several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, when the settlers in the West Bank, who are very different from the people who are living on near the Gazan border in Israel proper, started, you know, going around and killing Palestinians in the West Bank, burning down their houses, their olive trees, and so forth, and Biden put a sanction on some of those settlers and put pressure on Netanyahu to do something about it, and he did nothing about it. There was a, a, a jamboree just yesterday uh, in Jerusalem with the, the far, far right members of Netanyahu's uh, coalition uh, calling for a reoccupation of Gaza. The, the, you know, these people have to be sanctioned internally and externally. Uh, it, it creates an impression that this is what Israel really wants, when in fact these people are a very small minority of, of Israel. They, it, it's, there has to be, I don't know whether temporary, permanent, call it what you will, but the war has to stop. Uh, a lot of these conflicts, for example, the one that happened yesterday against the U.S. troops in Jordan, have nothing to do 
with what's going on uh, in, uh, in, in Gaza and Israel, but it's all merging. It's all smushing into each other. They all intensify one another. You know, somebody said, uh, somebody wrote an article the other day, I, I'm sorry, I forget who, that the various battles of World War II that, that coalesced into World War II started out as local and regional conflicts. It really has to be brought to an end uh, and very quickly. You know, Hezbollah is, is launching <laughs> about a dozen missiles a day into Israel, uh, including into Tel Aviv, uh, even fairly moderate Officers in Israel are saying we've got to go after Hezbollah to the north as well as Hamas to the south. Uh, you know, it, it's just this thing is going to wind out of control. And so, yeah, I think something you can't just have militias, you know, launching and, and uh, you know, the, the militias of Iran have, have, have fired 165 rockets or missiles or drones at U.S. forces in the Middle East since October 7th. That cannot be allowed to continue, and yet whatever we do in response militarily has to be attached very powerfully and urgently to a, a diplomatic uh, offensive, and not just by us, but also in, including getting Egypt, Saudi Arabia involved. They, they've, you know, they've been doing nothing for decades, lending rhetorical support to the Palestinians, doing nothing to help them materially. You know, the wall separating Gaza from Egypt. Have you seen pictures of this? I mean, you know, it's about 40 feet high with, with multiple layers of, of barbed wire. They, they want, they, they don't want, they want, they want Palestinians to come into the Sinai even less than Israel wants Palestinians to come into Israel. Before October 7th, there were 15,000 Gazans entering Israel every day with work permits. So, I mean, they have to get involved in this thing, and they, they, they have to step up. And, and it's a courageous act because their own people are actually more radical than they are. I'm talking about Saudis in particular. Uh, but they have to step up and, uh, and, and start supplying some stability, uh, which, which they've always shirked in, in places like Gaza. And and the surrounding areas. It, everybody has to 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 get involved and take some responsibility for what's about to to unwind into a serious right. regional war. And so, let me just say to frame this final stretch of the conversation that you wrote an article last week on Slate called "There's a Real Plan for Ending the War in Gaza, but Israel and Hamas." actually have to take it. You wrote that last Monday, and so much has happened since then. So I'll ask, is there still a real plan for ending the war in Gaza? Yeah, I've read varying versions of it since then. But but generally speaking, it involves uh, a truce of, I've read six weeks, I've read two months, I've read four months, during which in, in, in a few stages, uh, Hostages are freed, you know, beginning with, with women, uh, then uh, older men, and then men of a combat age whom, you know, the, uh, Hamas regards as soldiers, whether they are or not, in exchange for a certain number, hundreds or thousands of prisoners. Uh, the big hang-up now, I'm, I, what I read anyway, is that uh, whether this ceasefire is a temporary thing, which is what Israel wants, or permanent, which is what 
Hamas wants. Uh, I think the Biden administration's hope in doing the first prisoner hostage exchange about a month or so ago was that the temporary ceasefire would spill over into an extension, then another extension, then another extension, and that there would be time during this lapse in time, uh, some kind of diplomatic deal for a longer-term solution uh, could happen. So the question, and this is where things get difficult on, on all sides, Netanyahu has a very slender hold on power in Israel. If, if three people left his government, his government would, would collapse and there would have to be new elections and he would certainly lose. His party would lose. Uh, there are at least a dozen people in the right wing of his coalition who have said that they will leave the government if Netanyahu takes any steps toward a ceasefire like this. Now, are they bluffing? They might be because these guys are not going to get into another government. Well, in fact, I I see a breaking news story. This Uh is from the AP from just 10 minutes ago. It says Netanyahu speaking at an event in the West Bank denied reports of a possible ceasefire deal to end the war in Gaza and repeated his vow to keep fighting until absolute victory over Hamas. Quote, we will not end this war without achieving all of our goals. So, you know, sometimes people say, um, you know, people deny reports of a deal until there's a deal. Um, That's a pretty strong denial, though. He's saying he's not going to take part in it. And so, really, you know, even the other day, Chuck Schumer, who is as pro-Israel a senator as I can think of, said we have to start thinking about whether to link arms supplies to Israel to their human rights record and desire for peace. And I think it, it's well. How probably many Palestinians time- have to die in Gaza? Yeah, no, that's a good question too. Before uh, they do that, and does no, Biden and actually, does Biden ever feel like a Netanyahu patsy? You know, Biden stands against the way they're doing the war. They're certainly not standing with Hamas in any way in the Biden administration, but they're standing against the way Israel is fighting the war. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Biden has said bombing indiscriminately. They're yeah. trying to push for these hostage for um, ceasefire deals, which the hostage families want too. There are a lot of demonstrations in Israel that we don't hear about much in this country. I I guess my final question, when does Biden come to feel like he's Netanyahu's patsy unless there are some consequences? Well, you know, when he first, right after October 7th, I think he played a shrewd game. I mean, his first reaction was to hug Netanyahu. And, you know, the two have not gotten along in many years. I mean, they've known each other for a long time. There's some bristling hostility, but still he embraced Netanyahu. He said, just spoke nothing but favorable for Israel. And what that was about, I think he had to embrace them before then leveraging them to do certain things. And I think you have to give him some credit. I think without Biden's pressure, there would not have been any humanitarian corridors. There would not have been that initial hostage for prisoners trade. Uh, I think the bombing would be much more severe than it's been. But yeah, at some point, yeah, he played a clever game. I'm going to embrace Israel and then pressure them to do certain things. And I think some people in, in Netanyahu's emergency war cabinet, especially Garantz, are, are keen to do that. But Netanyahu is not. And so the tactic has not worked because you have uh, 
uh, a guy in Bibi Netanyahu who is just recalcitrant, whether for his own ideology or because he thinks that the war, as long as the war goes on, he remains in power because of the setting up of this emergency war cabinet. But yeah, I think, <clears throat> and I, there are people around Biden who have thought this for a while, but I think he now has to realize yeah. this hasn't worked. Uh, we have to start putting on the pressure, but I think this has to be done in conjunction with Qatar and Cairo putting the pressure on, on Hamas as well. It has to be right. both sides. We will see what happens next. Listeners, thank you for your many calls and texts with multiple points of view. We thank Fred Kaplan, the War Stories columnist for Slate. Fred, thanks a lot. Sure, anytime. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.